This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. This is episode number eighteen. We, we made it. We made it to eighteen. You know, this is a this is a big feat, and uh, I'm I'm very excited for this topic and panel today. Joining us right now is Adrian Day from Adrian Day Asset Management. Thank you for joining us, Adrian. Thank you. And Gary Reby, who is one half of the inimitable, the unimitatable. Uh, podcast that we have on the SNM Podcast Network uh, in the market trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fure. So Gary, what's going on? Good to see you. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, having me. This is not is this a round table or is this like a triangle today? What do we got going on? We, we got we got this is a it's like a triangle if it that that you like then you, you draw the circle from the points. Okay, got it. You, you know what I'm saying? Like it's the triangle within the circle kind of thing. That's that's what we got going on. <laughs> So, you know, I, cool. the, the, the topic that I want to cover today. Now, we, we've all been inundated with election news and prognostications on who's going to win and this and that and, and the, the, uh, the implications of all that. But I thought what would be an interesting spin on that type of conversation, and this was actually inspired by the recent episode that we just published up on In the Market Trenches with Gary and Eric, um, talking about Endgame you know, modern monetary theory, debt deficits, and debasement, really kind of taking stock of where we're at right now from a macroeconomic perspective. And then what are some potential scenarios and trying to understand what certain outcomes will be, your, all, all that good stuff. And so uh, because we just published this topic yesterday, I'm going to throw it off to Gary first and kind of, you know, Let's start the conversation there, maybe pick up a little bit on that conversation that we started from that episode, and then we'll go from there. So Gary, floor is yours. Let's go. Yeah, so I think before we get any going, I, I, I'm, I don't have any predictions on the election outcome, but I do have one, one prediction, and that's just, it's in, in a word, spending. There's going to be a lot of spending, regardless of who wins. And uh, I think that that's the nature of today's uh, sort, of, sort of talk. Um, you know, we did this did this pod with Eric the other day, and, and him and I, we sort of bat around what's really going on out there. And, you know, as it relates to, like, picking individual companies for us, for the most part, we tend to focus more on the, the micro. Um, but we do have clients who reallocate across asset classes. And, you know, we do have to pay some attention to the macro from that perspective. Uh, you know, most of the macro that I tend to pay attention to is sort of just what's the yield curve look like and what are credit spreads? And that just tells me how healthy capital markets are. And is it sort of, you know, is the water warm or is it, is it getting cold? And, um, you know, that's usually what I pay attention to, but uh, sort of with everything that happened in March, um, you know, sort of got me thinking on, you know, how and where do things go from here? I've spent some time looking at Japan, looking at uh, the EU, the issues that they're, that they're facing and just the developed world in general. And, it, it informs our allocations, I would say, more at the margin because we tend not to make all or nothing bets. But 
um, it does impact, some of these things will impact, you know, our attitudes towards investing in certain sectors in general. There's a bunch of cyclical sectors. Uh, there's banks, there's energy, there's insurance companies. Uh, insurance companies, not so much cyclical in the sense that they're tied to rates, I suppose. But like, you know, what's our attitude towards those types of things? But sort of, you know, it all sort of ties together. And, um, you know, sort of, as we sort of handle, sort of handling the, the, the COVID pandemic, I guess what I'd say is there seemed to be an acceleration in certain trends, at least as it relates to how things are dealt with from a central bank point of view and then from a, a, a fiscal point of view. And, you know, you know, it's one of those things that Eric and I, we sit around talking about, we can't shut up about, um, that probably doesn't inform our stock picking too, too much, but, you know, we, we, I'm a big believer that these battles are won and lost before they're fought. And so we need to think about it and think deeply about it and try really hard to have an insight or two. And uh, so that's sort of where we, how we started thinking about these things. And then I would say, you know, sort of in our view, we think we're sort of careening towards something, but it's really hard for us to, to determine, you know, where things go, you know, once we've, once, once we've, uh, Sort of gotten there and so um i'll kind of just stop there uh, and uh give some give adrian a chance to opine and uh maybe we can go back and forth on this because if i understand it you invest globally so um we tend to be a little bit more us focused but uh it should be an interesting conversation nonetheless adrian dig right in we got a lot of meat there let's do it yeah well, I, th I think, you know, the, the topic is the end game uh, with regard to monetary policy, right? Specifically, and then obviously we're going to talk about a lot of other things. So maybe, maybe I'd like to just step back a little bit and see where we are. Um, you know, in my view, in my view, the Fed, Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world, particularly Bank of Japan, particularly the European Central Bank, which are the big ones, um, they've really lost control, number one. Number two, I actually, and this sounds a bit extreme, I don't think they know what they're doing. Now, let me explain that. You know, for the last uh, 35 years, whatever, since, um, since long-term capital blew up, if you remember, and Greenspan stepped in to save the hedge fund run by the smartest guys in the room, uh, which was totally unnecessary. We had the Greenspan put. And that to me was the beginning of the disastrous road that we're on. Now, it really got obviously accelerated in 2007, 2008 rather, with the um, credit crisis, uh, when the Fed uh, and, and other central banks brought interest rates down to pretty much zero and in much of the world uh, to negative rates, uh, still something like 30% of all government bonds are trading at neg negative yields. And, and, and I say to people, you know, you don't have to be a PhD economist. Uh, in fact, it probably helps if you are a PhD economist because they're the only people that could understand the logic of a negative rate. Ordinary everyday people know that you don't lend something to somebody with a guarantee that they're going to pay you less back. I mean, you just don't do it. 
Uh, and not only did they collapse uh, interest rates to the lowest levels ever, and I mean ever, you know, if you look at Sidney Helmer's book on the history of interest rates, we can go back 6,000 years of interest rates. Rates have never been at this, low, at this lower level before. And of course they ballooned uh, the, the central bank um, uh, balance sheets, in other words, uh, created money. Um, so in, in, in the US it's now sevenfold what it was. A lot of people would say, well, that was necessary at the time. We had a credit crisis. I actually disagree with that. I think if they'd left it alone, we'd have had a sharper recession, but a shorter recession. But be that as it may, be that as it may, the, the huge mistake that the Fed made was not normalizing sooner. And Ben Bernanke, the Fed chair at the time, in 2004, said we're going to normalize interest rates and the balance sheet. And it was actually three and a half years before they took their first tentative steps towards raising rates and reducing the balance sheet. And when the stock market had a hizzy fit, the Fed capitulated. That was a huge mistake because it told the stock market, we're in control, you're not. And of course, you know, we've, we've, we know what's happened in the last six months, but there's a, and I'll stop in a second, I'm sorry, there's a, so much to say about this. Um, uh, we need some historical perspective, this is good. Yeah, a lot of people say, you know, COVID was unexpected. You know, the, the Congress had to do something uh, in response to the shutdown and the Fed had to do something. You know, COVID was totally unexpected. The thing that we've got to recognize, as I said, not only from 2008 onwards did the Fed keep interest rates low and uh, uh, expand the balance sheet, but the, the Fed credit was expanding from September 2019, a year ago, six months before COVID hit the US. And from September to January, September to January, before COVID hit the US, we had the fastest rate of growth in Fed credit ever, ever. So the Fed was already expanding well before COVID came. And um, that was, of course, in response to uh, the, the trouble in the um, uh, overnight repo market, which incidentally was a problem caused by Fed policy in the first place, but that's a different issue. Uh, we can discuss if you want, but that's a total. That was regulatory, right? Not not mm -hmm. a monetary phenomenon. It was the banks were too capital, like they couldn't allocate the capital fast enough or something. So the repo market sort of, the, the, the overnight re, uh, rate in the repo market went to like 10% or something, right? Right, right. But they talk about the repo market freezing. It didn't freeze. There was a rate at which, at which you could borrow money overnight. Uh, but, the, but anyway, we can talk about that if you want. But the point I'm making is that the Fed was already expanding credit. And there's that old saying, uh, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're a, federal, when you're a central bank, everything looks like the opportunity to expand credit, whether it's you know, a trade dispute with China or Brexit in Britain or the stock market going down or riots in the street or an illness, whatever it is, the answer is throw more money at it. And, and 
unlike Alan Greenspan, who I actually don't admire because he's such a smart guy and knew better, he, he actually did know better. Not he should have known better, he did know better. But at least Alan Greenspan, after his fits of um, expansion and, and easing, did at least normalize again. So he normalized in the, in the late 1990s, he normalized in the early 2000s. But when, since Ben Bernanke came over, we just basically haven't gone backwards at all, in, at all extent. And, 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 and so the path we're on right now is an extremely dangerous one because now we have not just um, what I'll call normal or traditional easing, QE, when it was started, was a novel policy. And Ben Bernanke himself at the time admitted that, that the Fed had not done any research whatsoever on the potential negative impacts of QE. So how can you have a central bank initiate a new policy that is a, that is a dramatic divergence from what they've done before and not have studied the potential negative consequences. And his answer, of course, was, oh, it was a credit crisis, we had to do something. You know, the system was about to collapse. We had to do something. So, so then we have helicopter money, which, you know, is basically giving people money for doing nothing. And then that's not a social comment, that's an economic comment. You're giving people money for, in, for nothing. And, and then we have um, an expansion of the assets that the Fed buys. You know, after 2007, they only bought treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And after, after two, in 2020, they started buying not only bond funds, but junk bond funds, and actually individual bonds. I'd like someone, and I'll, I'll stop in a second, I'd like someone to tell me why the Federal Reserve is buying Warren Buffett's bonds. Can't he get credit on his own? I mean, is there a problem with his credit? They're buying bonds of Daimler. Daimler, a foreign car company. Why is the Fed buying bonds of a foreign car company? And so we've got, that's the next step. And then the last step, of course, the ultimate is what is now happening in effect, which is modern monetary theory, which is Congress, I mean, the Federal Reserve, rather, sorry, the Federal Reserve supports and accommodates the unfunded spending of Congress and the administration for that matter. So whatever funding Congress does, the Fed is going to accommodate them, which is completely different from what happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, when the Fed was telling Congress, we're not going to do this, you've got to, you've got to support your own spending, whether that's by, by reducing spending or by borrowing money or by, increasing tax. Not that I want that, but, but Congress said, we're not gonna, you've got to do it. But so this is a very, very dangerous road we're on, in my view. Gary, you wanna yeah, respond? Yeah, it's interesting. Or? So I think, no, I mean, it's a, I don't think it's a point counterpoint. I think we are no, no. in a lot of agreement on a lot of different things. Uh, you know, it's interesting in my mind, we've almost at this point reached the point of no, at some point over the last decade, we reached the point of no return with this where there's sort of, there's, there's no going back because nobody wants to actually suffer the consequences of going back. And so, you know, and from my mind, like what's sort of done is, is done. And I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And it's funny, you know, you go back all the way back to long-term capital. If you read the book, When Genius Failed, 
a lot of the same people were still running around in 08 and they were the, and they were the primary actors that were the, the, the culprits in the 08 crisis. It's, 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 it's funny how, how long some of these folks hung around there and they, and they tended to learn, I would say nothing, or maybe they learned that the Fed is going to be there. I don't, I don't know, but uh, it wasn't, it wasn't to reduce the risk. It was to, it was uh, maybe it was the wrong lesson and that's the moral hazard. Uh, but you know, it's sort of, at a certain point, I would say, and maybe it was the 2008 crisis, um, maybe it was after the 2008 crisis, we'd reached sort of a point of no return with this where, there, you know, you mentioned that the Fed was easing last year and it wasn't because of COVID. And that's, and that's because the Fed lets the market tell it what to do. So it's funny that you mentioned, um, uh, you mentioned uh, something about, the, you know, the stock market going down and then, and then reacting. Well, I, you know, I go to an annual, well, when we had conferences, I used to go to an annual conference and uh, uh, where they brought in some pretty high level uh, ec economics folks and what have you. And uh, I was speaking to the former chief of uh, the White House chief economist under uh, the second George Bush, George Bush. And what he told me always resonated with me. And it told me basically all I needed to know about the way these people would behave is that essentially they view the best leading economy, the leading, the best leading economic indicator for the economy as the S&P 500. And so it, that just, you know, them saying that tells you all you need to know when the S&P declines 20%, what they're going to do. They're, they, they view it as, um, you know, an, an indicator of where American business is going. And to some extent, there's some reflexivity there, right? Because there's a wealth effect that comes from higher asset prices and wealthier people spend less and what have you, you know fine but like just the knowledge of that alone tells you what these people how these people view things and if you know how these people view things you know what the incentives are the incentives are once the incentives are effectively become letting the market tell you what to do and that's sort of what's been going on for the probably the last decade at least probably 12 to 13 years right um i, I would i would observe and so but you know as a I kind of wonder, as we sit here today, if we're in some sort of brave new world where um, you mentioned the government, the Federal Reserve directly financing the government, like there's probably no going back from that. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that that's going to stop. And, you know, the, 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 you mentioned the expansion of the balance sheets and all this capital that's available. Well, it's, we're in this sort of funny world where, um, you know, you have all this capital out there, but, but it doesn't move. And inflation isn't rising, it's falling. And it's probably because there's too much capital that doesn't move. And, you know, it, you know, when you have all this capital, you have all this investment and that sort of accelerates trends in technology, which puts downward pressure on like, it's sort of like the, all this gearing up of the system levers the system in such a way where n not only can rates not move higher and, and, and things start to sort of normalize as we know them. And I, and I have Sydney Homer's book too. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Um, it, it's actually this, this, the sheer amount of debt outstanding is the is in itself the hindrance from uh, the the rates going up because that actually creates the conditions for the economy to contract and for prices to fall and for there to be a recession and for rates to move lower. And so, like our view on this, to the extent that we have a macro view and express it in our portfolios, is that sort of it's a series of lower highs and lower lows in rates as 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 this mechanical aspect has sort of the, the 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 balance sheets have expanded. The debt has gone up, and this the, the sort of it's it, it, and sort of 
the noose gets tighter, right? And so that's that's sort of what's been going on. And, you know, we're not negative here like they are in Europe or they are in Japan or any other place. But, um, and I kind of think that the Fed has an allergy towards doing that because I don't think that it's been, like you pointed out, they don't have any research that would show that it would work. But it may not preclude the market from taking the treasury curve there the next time there's a crisis. No, there's a lot of so, a lot of things you said. I mean, I agree completely. And you know, with regard to the stock market, yeah, it's a little bit of a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? The stock market goes up because there is more money coming in, but the Fed looks ahead at the stock market, and if it falls back a bit, you know, it puts more money in. The correlation over the last twelve years between uh liquidity in the stock market i i don't know the number i'm sorry but you can overlay the two graphs and they're almost identical almost identical with very very Fed balance sheet is expanding stock market's going up Fed yeah. balance sheet is stagnant stock market's stagnant yeah 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 but you know you asked a question or you 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 said you think is there's no going back and i i think i i really wonder if we are at that point of no return now because I agree with you. Um, you know, it's it's like in everything in life, but it's like you know, the first time you say no to your child is the easiest no. But you know, once once you let your teenager go out on a Friday night and not come back till midnight, you know, three nights, three three Saturdays in a row, how do you say no the fourth one? You know, where's the principle? There is none, and it's the same with the Fed. You know, I, I, I think the biggest mistake, they made a lot of mistakes, but, but certainly not, not normalizing sooner was, was definitely one. And you mentioned, the other thing you mentioned, of course, was debt. And there's so much debt in the world. In many countries, debt is more than the, GD, than the entire GDP of the country. So in that kind of scenario, how do rates go up? And if you just look at the federal, the federal uh, balance sheet, while even while interest rates have collapsed, the amount of money that is being, the amount of the budget that goes on servicing the debt has inched upwards. Now, if you started putting rates and the, and the, 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 uh, the um, federal government has made the mistake of the natural mistake, I think, of refinancing at the short end because rates are so low, instead of you know locking in these low rates uh, for 30 or even longer terms. I mean, the US government could issue 100-year bonds if they wanted to. Um, they could float a perpetual if they wanted to. Yeah, now the rates will be higher than the three months, but at least lock it in. But so if with the, with the, with the government refi, with the government now having the highest percentage of its uh, debt in short-term treasuries ever, with rates at all-time lows, and yet the servicing on that debt continues to inch up because of the higher debt, how can they raise rates? You know, you double you double rates at the short term. Doubling is nothing from here. You know, right? But you put rates up to you know one two percent or even three percent, and suddenly the I, I calculated that a four percent treasury four percent average yield, we would be spending over thirty percent of a budget would be going on debt servicing, which is sort of basically yeah, it doesn't work. sustainable. 
So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Well, to... well I'll, I'll, do, I'll do you one more. Then the question naturally becomes, how does this get paid for? And the same thing applies, I think, to the, ta to the tax base as it does to the debt stack and the leverage in the economy and the interest rates. And so, you know, the amount of tax revenue that you would have to raise to service the solar to get it down um, would create the conditions for the economy to collapse. So it's not politically feasible to raise taxes to the point where um, where it gets paid for naturally that way because it would create the conditions for the economy to implode. And that's so the question becomes, if you can't raise rates to get out of this, it's unlikely you're going to be able to grow to get out of this. And, um, you know, natural increases in rates aren't allowed to, are, are, are unlikely to happen because of the debt stack. I mean, what's the way out? That's the trillion dollar question. How many, how many trillion dollar question is that right there? I mean, that, I mean, that was, that's one of the main things we wanted to discuss today because I mean, right now you have the GDP is about a hundred percent. So it's about $20 trillion. So I'm going to call it a $20 trillion question. I think a $20 trillion question is good. There we go. So, I mean, y'all look at the markets on a daily basis, more so than even probably definitely more than I do. Um, I mean, what, what's, what's some scenarios that you can see happening here? You know, are we just gonna be on a perpetual, just continue, debt continuing to grow without being able to service it? And there's gonna have to be some other ways. I mean, you know, Adrian, you mentioned a little earlier that the Fed's buying, you know, Berkshire bonds. Um, you know, it seems like there's this new corporate, there's this new corporate bond strategy to try and invest in public equities as a way in which maybe at some point, you know, those are that raises in value, they sell that. That's, that starts to raise a little bit of cash for the Fed. I mean, what other things do you guys expect to see? And it doesn't really matter the outcome of the election at all in that sense. I mean, something's going to, something's got to give here at this point. Well, when you talk about the end point. game, when you say yeah. an end game, we always think of, you know, uh, the great reckoning, you know, where, where does it stop and change? And, you know, I think there's a couple of things that we can see from history. One is, Yes, often you have a crisis usually brought about by the policies we've had, but not always, but you have a crisis which ends what was going on and you have a kind of reset if you want. When I talk about a reset, I'm not talking about just um, a debt jubilee at this point. I'm just saying something happens that collapses the system and you start again. And we can talk about that if you want. But the other thing that can happen, there's many examples in history. The entire period, but people who live in that country don't really appreciate, because it's not a sudden event, they don't always appreciate just how much things are deteriorating. Let me just give an example, um, if I may. Uh, since the Federal Reserve came in, which is now just a little over 100 years, right? One of, their, one of their mandates was to maintain the purchasing power of the currency. Since the Fed came in, the dollar has lost over 99% of its purchasing power. That's a fact. And that's astonishing. And yet it's been just a slow deterioration. And so, you know, most people don't even, don't even sort of recognize it. Um, and that can happen in an economy. It just it just goes on for a long time, but um, but deteriorates until you get a crisis. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think that what Gary, we're seeing right now. To I just even... want to hold on real yeah. quick before you answer that. Uh, just want to let everybody know who's watching. There may my internet may have went out a little bit, so just to fill the gap for what Adrian was saying is that there is historical perspective uh, to that can give us maybe some insight into what's going on right now. Um, and then also what I meant is that it doesn't matter the outcome of the election. I'm talking from, I was just saying from an economic perspective, which is what we're kind of talking about today. But Gary, sorry, you were saying. Yeah, so I think a lot of this stuff, I mean, it's not natural and it's, it's unhealthy. And it's sort of, um, you know, it's sort of bleeding into, you know, the social scene as it is right now. And, you know, there's social unrest is on the rise. Political tension is on the rise. And the biggest reason for that is like, it's a low growth world. And if there's low or no growth, you know, a lot of things become zero sum. And so when you have a lot of things start to become zero sum, the tensions just naturally escalate because it becomes more of a land grab. It's a political land grab. It's a social land grab. It's, it's, it's everything. If everyone's doing just a little bit better, well, you could put some of these things that we disagree about off to the side a bit and, and sort of say, okay, well, that's fine. So I think the natural tendency is going to be to try to make people the lower half. So a lot of the Fed policies have basically exasperated inequality from a wealth perspective, from an income perspective. Um, and so the people at the top are doing just fine. Like in Europe, that's very difficult to do because you've got, I don't know, 17 countries that can't agree on anything. And in Japan, culturally, they're very just just very different than, than the United States. But, um, you know, we're going to reach a point where the government gets paid to borrow uh, probably in the next crisis would be my guess. And, um, you know, if capital is free, Mark said it could be confiscated. So we're going to see some of that, I think. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what, how we position ourselves, how we protect people in that event and, you know, the kinds of things we want to own versus not own in that event. That's absolutely excellent. You know, I, I, um, very few people seem to really grasp that this Federal Reserve policy that has exacerbated the wealth gap in this country. And I hadn't actually thought about your point, which is an excellent one, about uh, in a low growth economy, it becomes a zero sum game. And so that again exacerbates the wealth gap. But, um, you know, what the Fed did after 2008 was, as we know, they exacerbated the wealth gap by only buying uh, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, which of course was helping the money center banks. And that was really what they were trying to do because they honestly thought that the money center banks were about to collapse. So their policies were geared towards helping the money center banks. When people talked about helping the economy, uh, you know, that, that wasn't, I don't think, what was, they weren't really trying to help Main Street, if you like. And the policy that they introduced in 2009 of paying the banks for excess deposits was precisely the wrong policy if you were trying to help Main Street. And so with all the money flowing to Wall Street, if you like, um, it exacerbated the wealth gap, but I think it also exacerbated the wealth gap in a way that ordinary people could see was unfair. Ordinary people may not have a PhD in economics, but they knew that the banks were being helped and they weren't being helped. They could see it because, in, well, you know. Well, I mean, the, the banks got bailouts, the executives got bonuses and they got foreclosure notices. 
I'm sorry? Yes, 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 exactly. I mean, the, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I mean, that's, I mean, it's not, it doesn't take a, I mean, you don't, you don't need to have 20 years, you know, 20 years of schooling to figure out that that's wrong. Like, that's not, um, uh, and I shouldn't say that it's, I mean, people borrowed more than they could afford, sure, okay, but like, that whole, th there's an, there's an inequity there that sure. it doesn't take it doesn't it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that there that there's a that there's an inequity in how that was dealt with and like you Bobby you say that like I'm a micro a macro guy and and I do a lot of micro and the way I express this view in my portfolios is and and whether or not I like it or not I just bet on more income inequality yeah. and who, who's going to benefit from income income inequality and like that's you know part of what I think about when we when, when maybe we buy something. So it's, a, it's an input. Well, and the other thing, of course, that's happening with the, with the growing inequality is we're also diminishing the middle class. Um, and, and again, that's a direct result of, of uh, you know, Fed expansion, which is destroying the purchasing power of the dollar, which means people's savings are being destroyed. So the middle class people who have done the right thing all their life, saved money, you know, expect to live off their retirement. They can't live off their retirement. So we're destroying the middle class. And that is, that is extremely bad for a, for a society when you don't have a center. You have to have a center or you just move towards two extremes and you get the well, kind particularly of- particularly for a democratic society, right? I mean, right? that's most important for, particularly for a democratic society. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, where we're heading with this, I'll throw something else out if I may, and it gets to, you know, the end game, if you like. Um, a very well-known economist wrote a paper talking about how we shouldn't be afraid of, um, not an economist, a hedge fund manager. We shouldn't be afraid of modern monetary theory. It's been implemented by governments many times in, in history. And he mentioned a few examples. And what hit me was he failed to look at what happened maybe 10 years later, maybe 20 years later, because you know there's a lot of ruin in a country, they say. A lot of ruin in a country. It can go on a long time. But if you look at countries that have destroyed the purchasing power of their currency, whether it's fourth century Rome, whether it's 13th century Jing dynasty, whether it's the early Stuart kings in, in England uh, or in uh, Great Britain at that time, whether it's the Weimar Republic, look at what followed all of these examples of the destruction of the currency, the destruction of the middle class, because Germany in the beginning of the 19th, uh, 20th century had a thriving middle class, but the runaway inflation under the Weimar Republic destroyed that middle class. And so you had communists on the one hand and then the rise of the fascists on the other hand. In all of those examples, it, there was an end game, if you like. And the end was war. In the case of, of um, uh, Jing Dynasty in Rome, it was invasion by the barbarians and the Mongols. In the case of the Stuarts, it was civil war followed by a dictatorship. And, and in the case of Weimar, of course, it was the rise of Hitler in the Second World War. Now, is that the end game that we face? Because we're certainly seeing growing divisions in society. We're, we're certainly seeing more and more animosity 
in this country like we have never seen before. I, I think, you know, in, but we haven't seen for a hundred years anyway. Um, and, and Maybe 160. Well, yeah. And so you see this, look at Argentina, you, you know, what happened there, you know, they invaded um, the Falklands or the Malvinas if you prefer, but they invaded the Falklands under the dictatorship their modern monetary theory ended in a dictatorship with the opposition being disappeared. I don't like using the word disappear in that sense, but anyway, with, with, with the opposition um, uh, disappearing and then they instigated a war to take people's attention off it. Look at Zimbabwe, same thing, where the currency utterly destroyed and to take people's attention off that they initiated what was essentially a civil war, a massacre of, of other tribes within, within the country. And so all these, all these examples, they never end well. They never end well. Well, that's a little bleak. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, like in, let's say we know, you know, we have this historical perspective now, Adrian and Gary, so I mean, what are some things that if you had to, you know, Gary, we talk about tinfoil hats, right? You know, if we had to have some tinfoil hats on, you know, what are some ways in which where, you know, Gary, you don't have to use a rising inequality as a potential input. And we start to see the middle class start to come back. I mean, what are some things where the path that we are on today, you know, is there a scenario and or end game where we can kind of get back somewhere near or close to that using kind of the chips that we have in the pot right now. Yeah, so I kind of wonder if the middle class exists in the wild. And so what I mean by that is, is it, is it an endangered species and sort of something that happened in sort of the industrial age was allowed some of that to happen, but, um, you know, is it the kind of thing that should naturally exist in the wild? And this is going to sound like a heartless thing to say, but like, you know, wages for unskilled labor should trend towards a subsistence level. It just, they just should. And so I don't know if we can necessarily count on business to provide a living wage. And so I wonder if this MMT is going to morph into a social program that's financed by the Fed. And I think that that's entirely possible. Um, I'm surprised that we haven't heard more of it yet but I think that we could see some of it. I also think that the Fed can be used as a tool to essentially recapitalize the federal government, the treasury. And, um, you know, they can then push that money through the economy. So, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways that this could play out, but I think it's inevitably careening towards more, more social and perhaps in and alongside of that, um, a sort of a debasement event or a series of debasement events similar to uh, 1934 when FDR confiscated the gold for $21 an ounce and then turned around and priced it at 35 or uh, in 71 when Nixon took us off the gold standard. And that was essentially the 19th pe people. My view, I mean, is that the 1970s were in large part because the U S defaulted on its currency. And so, um, you know, I think that we could see that in a series of things like that. And, um, you know, if you 
recapitalize the government into a perpetual security that doesn't need to be repaid, aren't you essentially equitizing the deck, the debt? Isn't that theoretically possible? And isn't that politically speaking, the path of least resistance because it doesn't require a vote. It doesn't require um, an act of Congress, but for maybe raising the debt ceiling, but if you're equitizing the debt, is it really debt? Um, you know, I just think that when we're, when we're assessing the path forward on this, we need to be looking at the motivations of the actors and the paths of least resistance. And so as I see it, those are the paths of least resistance. And so it's careening towards something, how and when it gets there, I don't know. Um, it's probably it, around the next crisis, whatever that may be, whenever that may be, maybe we're there. Um, and, you know, what do we do about it? I mean, you know, from where I sit, it's owning businesses that have pricing power. It's maybe arguing for some hard currency. Maybe it argues for non-government money. Maybe it argues for a bunch of other things. And, um, you know, maybe you want to be a borrower, not a lender. Um, you know, as I sit here and think through how that all plays out, those are the things that run through my head. And, you know, it may not necessarily be that the U.S. is the only country doing this. Maybe it is, maybe it happens in a coordinated fashion with the EU and with J the Bank of Japan and Swiss National Bank. Like, these banks coordinate with one another. They, they collude. And um, so it doesn't necessarily mean, mean mean that the dollar needs to get cut in half. It could just mean that everybody does something in proportion to the size of their economy that's, that's similar in this way. And we can um, sort of avoid the un or some of the unrest. I don't know. But it seems to me that we're on the road to somewhere right now. And uh, if, we're not, if you're not thinking about it, you're going to be surprised when we get there. Well, no, I, I agree. And I think there's a lot of things that are, are being actively thought about and discussed. And as often happens, you get sort of, um, you know, trial balloons. Um, I was going to say balloons run up the flagpole, but that's, that's mixing the metaphors. But you get trial balloons, you get academic papers, you get a hearing in Congress, you get, you know, op-ed articles and so on, just to sort of gauge for response, I think. Not to see if anyone has a rational argument against what you're doing, but just to gauge for political response. So the two next things that I see coming, well, three really. One is I see a continuation of, we'll call it the MMT theory of, of the Fed just supporting unfunded spending. We're going to see more and more of that. Um, and and a lot of people are talking about universal basic income. We're going to see some form of that. You know, gosh, if the poor people are upset, let's let's just throw some money at them, and maybe that'll keep them quiet. The um, and and for anyone listening, that was sarcasm. Please don't please don't hurl abuse at me. That was sarcasm. Uh, I don't think that'll keep them quiet because there's no dignity in that. Sorry. Absolutely, of course, of course not. I mean, people don't like being left out. They don't like to feel that however hard they try, they're, they're out of the system, they're just left out. They don't like that. And, you know, throwing extra money at them, yeah, you'll take the money, but it, there's, as you say, there's no dignity. I think this, the second thing we're going to see is what we might call continual stimulus, and they're talking about this, 
again in Congress and some of the Fed talking about just, you know, I mean, look, they say 2008, we started QE and the economy grew, didn't it? Until COVID came along, that wasn't our fault. And we didn't have inflation. So maybe stimulus is a good thing. There's no, no consequence. Um, of course, from 2007 to 2016 was the slowest recovery in US history, but let's forget about that. You know, I mean, we had an economic recovery, no inflation, let's just have continual stimulus. So we're going to see that. And the third thing we're going to see is some form of debt jubilee, and we're already beginning to see that. You know, they, it's almost a slam dunk, but they're going to um, uh, forgive student debt, for example. Um, a, a, a lot of debt. Are the debt forgiveness of, of people, people in New York City who are um, in apartments and have debt forgiveness, uh, uh, who don't have to pay their rent for the time being, are we suddenly going to say to them, okay, you now own nine months rent, pay up. Um, the restaurants that have been closed down for six months and then allowed to open for carry out only and then allowed to open only at 25% capacity. Yeah, the landlord said, don't worry about this month, don't worry about that month. But at some point he wants the rent paid, doesn't he? If he can, he's gonna try. So I think we're gonna get some form of all three, universal basic income, debt forgiveness, and continual stimulus. And all of that- Yeah, and I might just add, I might, I might just add that I, 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 would, I would think that at some point they're gonna recapitalize the state. And, and that as well, no, absolutely. And all of that keeps it going, but in the background, the standard of living is slowly deteriorating. Certainly against what it could be or should be or would be. Yeah. Well, Adrian, let's say, let, I mean, let's, let's play a little game here, right? Like, you know, we sometimes like to play games here on the Investors Roundtable. So let's say you were calling the, the shots. Let's say, uh, you know, Powell resigned and, uh, we nominated Adrian Day and Gary Reeby to run the Fed. Now, uh, if, if you had to be in that position and you're, you have the deck that you have right now, you know, what move are you making? You know, how, how, how do you get away from what, you know, some, some historical perspectives that have happened out there? Who's going first? First thing I'd do uh, is- I'll, I'll let you, Not I'll, me. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go first, because I- uh... <laughs> I'll do what William Buckley I mean, did. Um, I demand a recount. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I think, well, a couple of things. I mean, this, is a, this sounds like a cop-out, but I don't think it, it is. In many ways, we have gone too far because I often ask myself, okay, what should the Fed do now? Well, one, one thing for certain is one thing for certain I would do, and that is, you know, there's that old saying, when you're in a hole, the first thing is to stop digging. So the first thing to do is not make it, not make it any worse. That doesn't mean necessarily raise interest rates immediately because that's, that would be difficult. But at least, at least start to roll back on the increases in the balance sheet and at least uh, uh, narrow the sort of assets that you would buy and just slowly um, start to uh, move back towards some kind of normal. But I mean, 
yeah it's it's i i think at, at this point we we've, we've gone so far down this road that it's difficult to draw back without um you know serious consequences but i think i think the first thing i would do is an, announce very clearly and very publicly what what the what the end game of my policies would be which essentially would be the abolition of the federal reserve so i would be working towards doing myself out of a job but you couldn't do that overnight i don't know that's not very satisfactory is it robert <laughs> it's it's an answer <laughs> you know i mean look we're all entitled to what, what I mean, I it's a difficult question right there's no right or wrong answer here right like well if you would have asked me 10 years ago it actually would have been easier and i'm not just that that's not a cop-out 10 years ago it would have been a lot easier it's it's not an easy thing right now um but i think the first thing is you stop digging so you you don't have a debt jubilee and you don't have universal basic income and you tell the Congress, if you want to spend money, you have got to find a way of paying for it, whether it's borrowing more or, or, or cutting other spending. I mean, part of a problem, of course, is in the budget. What, what, what is it? I, I, how much of it is actually non-defense non discretionary spending? It's, it's minimal, it's what, 12% or something? You know, if you look at the interest on, on the debt, um, the the um, social social payments that are non-discretionary, and then you add defense on. There's hardly anything that they can, that they really can cut. Um, but they need to start cutting spending and um, having working towards a more, you know, a more balanced budget, um, where spending is supported by by debt or by or by taxes gotcha. and i don't want higher taxes by the way don't don't anybody think that i think we can all agree there i, I mean gary i don't want to pay i hate paying taxes the things that i think of to try to avoid taxes is i spend some a great deal of time on uh to no avail in, in most instances so uh sadly um i guess i'll take uh, a different uh, a different point of view on it because you know i talk about sort of you know the fed recapitalizing the treasury you know i'm basically i'm doing that by putting my myself in the seat of the guy who's, who's making the decision and saying what's feasible what's not feasible and you know this money you know it's, it's like heroin and you know the first shot is a real high and each subsequent high is a little bit lower and you know i mean the bottom line is we've been we've dancing with mr brownstone for too long and so it's it's a problem. And so I, I kind of think that I would try to engineer a great reset um, of it all to be able to return to a normal environment without killing the patient. Um, and the next, when the government gets paid to borrow or if and when the government gets paid to borrow, I would offer to recapitalize the treasury, the entire debt stack with a perpetual and hand it to them and um that would be a normalizing event it would be a perverse thing but it would be a normal it could then you could then you could at that point push that through the economy and you could sort of start to normalize things um, from an inflationary perspective and all of these other things that these people want and from my point of view 
we've sort of reached the point of no return. So like, there's no going back to what the old normal was in my view. So we sort of, to sort of try to fight it, I think is a losing battle. And you sort of have to accept that we're on this road and you have to have some idea of, of we need to be headed towards a reset. And that can be coordinated with other banks and whatever else, but like, um, you know, the Fed can't do, the Fed's tried to do all these things. Um, and it can really only make sure that the financial system is, is stable and functioning. It really can't guarantee employment. Um, it really can't guarantee that we hit the inflation targets that they're trying to hit. Um, it, like a lot of that stuff just falls outside of their ability, like their true ability to do things, um, in, especially in the type of world that we're in. So I would try to actually normalize it by, you know, maybe stepping on the accelerator for some of these things to get there and sooner rather than later. And that required, but that, you know, requires cooperation from other parties as well. So, um, but I do think that we will reach a point in time where that consensus is reached that um, there needs to be some sort of recapitalization. There needs to be some inflation that's built into the economy. The Fed is ill-equipped to do so. And it's going to be Congress's job to build 2% inflation into the economy or 3% inflation into the economy. It's not going to be the Fed's job. It's going to, it's going to be the Fed's job to make sure that that's 2 or 3% doesn't go to 6 or 7 um, But it's going to be Congress's job to make sure that it doesn't go below 2 and so that's the world that we're ultimately going to need to get to if the financial systems are going to function like people want them to. Now, I can't, you know, is that ideal? No. Is it perfect? No. Um, but I'm not going to project my wishes onto the world uh, without recognizing what the world looks like. Well, you could certainly... I know, is that too controversial, Adrian? Well, no. I mean, recapitalizing the debt would... would... I mean, it depends on what you mean by recapitalizing, but issuing issuing um, low interest rate perpetuals, and they would be low interest rate at this point. You know, Britain did that, if you remember, three three over three hundred years ago. We issued perpetuals. What? But the government Consoles. is still paying interest on. You know, I mean, consuls, yeah. And you know, that would just make logical sense because once you've done that. Then you, then you don't have to be overly concerned about interest rates moving up and the effect on the, the, effect on the uh, federal budget. That's one thing you don't have to worry about. So, I mean, I certainly- you, you've, essentially, you've, you've essentially equitized the debt. It's mes equity, essentially. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, so, you know, that would, that would make sort of logical sense. But I mean, I just, I don't know. I, I think there's so many, so the path we're on is just, is just not the right path and it's not going to end well. And um, I, I, recapitalizing the, the debt is, is a good idea. Now that still leaves individuals and households with, with too much debt um, in many cases. Uh, I'm not overly concerned about corporations at this point. Um, but certainly, I think household saving, like if you look at the if you look at the American consumer, they're not in such bad shape. Um, it's really the state and locals that are in a lot of trouble. And so, part of the recapitalization would be moving the state and local to the federal ledger and like just sort of, you know, going up with it. And you know, then you can return to a more normal world where things actually function because you're getting money in the hands of people whose propensity to spend is very high, rather than you know 
you make the stock market go up 50%. What is your, does your spending change all that much? My spending doesn't change all that much. Maybe I, uh, you know, redo my bathroom or something, but. No, no. Spending change all that much? Yeah. No, absolutely. But I, I, I'm not sure that we want to engineer inflation. That is a pretty dangerous path uh, to be on. We do, we do already, of course, have inflation. If you look at inflation, not as consumer price index going up, that's the result of inflation. That's the reflection of inflation. But inflation is Fed credit going up or central government credit going up, which, which has been doing. The question is, when, when the Fed creates excess credit, which it is doing now, that is by definition credit in excess of the current needs of the economy, that excess credit goes somewhere. And for the last 10 years, 12 years, it's gone primarily to the stock market. And that's because of, of the, if you like, the mechanics of how the Fed has created the money. They've, give, they've sent it to the, to the money center banks, but then they've told the banks, we'll just stick it back on deposit with us and we'll pay you interest. So the money hasn't, I mean, that is, that is the most perverse policy I can think of if you want to move the economy. But if there were opposite incentives to get banks to lend, uh, banks to borrow that, um, sorry, if there were opposite incentives to get the banks to lend that money into the real economy, I don't think we'd have to worry about inflation for very long, personally. I mean, not, not now with COVID, um, but, but uh, you know, a year from now, I don't think we'd have to be worrying about inflation being too low. But the money's, as we know, the money's not circulating. It's not circulating for a lot of reasons, but um, uh, psychology being one at the moment, but, but also just the, the money's not getting in, not sufficient money is not getting into the hands of, of Main Street at the moment. Well, I mean, I mean, Main Street, like you want to talk about inflation. I mean, like the, the, the crux of the problem, in my view, is that there's too much capital. It's too easy to substitute capital for labor. And labor is where the inflation comes from because they demand higher wages and they spend it. Labor has no bargaining power. Like that, it, it's just sure. The lower half of the country has no bargaining power with respect to, to wages. There are certain subsets of people that do, um, but it's, what's what's kind of perverse about that is they tend to be more public public sector employees, which have actually largely contributed to the the finances of these state and locals that need that have that need to be essentially recapitalized and bailed out. But um, but your average laborer doesn't doesn't have any bargaining power. Like you can't, like that guy can't go in and demand. I'm, you know, you're paying me ten dollars an hour. You know, I, I demand fifteen. They're going to say go, go take a hike, and you're going to see substitution of capital for labor. And you know, it's uh, another another theme in in our portfolios is sort of, you know, you you can you can play that at the bottom rung of, of society too for companies that benefit from serving the bottom rung in society because it's it's that 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 pool of people is expanding, not contracting, sadly. No, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I agree with that completely. Um, the other, you know, talking about the portfolio, I must make a plug for gold <laughs> because, you know, it's only, gold it's only is, been an hour in and now we're, now we're getting the, the gold plug. Well, if we're talking about a portfolio, it seems to me that if you think we're going to see a continuation of the Fed policies that we have been seeing, and that's an almost certainty, 
I think we agree on that, you know, but in some way, shape or form, Congress is going to continue to spend money and the Fed is going to continue to accommodate it um, in some way, shape or form. So that's a deterioration of the purchasing power of the currency. But one sure protection against that is, is gold. And so, you know, gold would form a substantial basis of any portfolio we have. We also do gold stocks, but you know, you have to really know what you're doing with the gold stocks because there's a sort of misconception that if gold goes up, well, the gold stocks, my gold stock will necessarily go up. And of course, that's not necessarily true. Gold stocks are just about the most uh, idiosyncratic sector out there where the difference between you know, company A and company B can be night and day. So uh, you need to pay attention and know what you're doing, but certainly gold itself and some of the really high quality, low risk gold companies, you know, like some of the big royalty companies like Franco Nevada, for example, would form the basis of any portfolio. And let me just add one thing. Something was said earlier about, you know, deflation or was it on my last conference call? I can't remember, but one thing we need to recognize about gold is gold is not just an inflation hedge. People think gold is an inflation hedge and if we don't have inflation, you know, gold's not really gonna move much. If you look throughout history, there was a, a, a really wonderful piece of research by, uh, he's dead now, but a, a guy called Professor Roy Jastrom. The book is called The Golden Constant. And in it, he looked at annual prices of gold and annual cost of living. And it went all the way back to the early 13th century. That is the early 1200s when the Magna Carta was signed. And the records are pretty darn good. And then he also had a chapter on from Rome to the 12th century, which was a lot of conjecture, a lot of missing pieces. But from the early 12, 1200s, the actual annual, annual cost of living statistics are pretty darn good. Uh, he used England from 1200 to uh, seven to 1815 or something, and then he used America for the last uh, two, two centuries. And what you find is that gold actually performs better in terms of protecting purchasing power during periods of a deflation than periods of inflation, which is counterintuitive to a lot of people. Uh, because obviously in an, in an inflation, the price goes up on a nominal basis. But in terms of purchasing power, it actually protected purchasing power better during periods of deflation and periods of inflation. So, you know, we shouldn't be, as gold investors, you don't want to be worried about that. The, the other stack- is, is that because the, the policy prescription for deflation is helicopter money? Is that- no, I don't think so. You mean is sorry, helicopter money leads to deflation? No, 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 no. Uh, the policy oh. prescription to fight yes, 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 yes. helicopter Absolutely. money and thus. Absolutely, 100%, 100%, yeah. Anything, you know, helicopter money absolutely is, is inflationary. Um, I mean, it hasn't been yet because it's happened during COVID. That's a problem. When, you know, spending patterns are distorted, when a lot of people don't have income, so you get a, a free check and 
A lot of people have been, the statistics show this, a lot of people who get the free check have actually been using it to pay down their credit cards or something like that. That's because they're not yeah. getting normal income at the same time. But if you had anything like helicopter money or um, universal basic income in a normal economy, you would find that the majority of that money would be spent, yeah, which would lead mm -hmm. to inflation. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I took you off track. Uh, that's my question. No, no, that, that's fine. I think I've probably gone on long enough. Uh, but I mean, the real point, well, the other point that was fascinating, he actually had a chart uh, as well, 800-year chart of the, of the, or seven, 800-year 800, chart of the um, purchasing power of money. And apart from the period since the 1970s, the variance, this might sound as though it's not so low, but the variance from absolute high to absolute low has been only 100%. But 100% sounds like quite a lot. You know, you bought gold in 1620 and sold it in 1921 and you lost 50% of your money. That sounds like a lot. There's no other currency in the world that has that kind of track record. And, and, and I'm picking the extreme high and the extreme low. So 100% variance is, is pretty darn good over, over 800 years as a, as a track record. <laughs> Anyway, I, 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 um, but I think gold does belong in a portfolio at this point, without, without question. What do you think it primarily trades on? Because I've, I've looked at this and tried to figure this out. Is it fear? Is it prospects of future heli more helicopter money? Is it, you know, like in March, it sort of did very poorly because it was a wholesale liquidation and maybe it was the only thing that people could sell easily. But like, have you, ever, have you seen any, Good research on that. I was just got a curiosity. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the thing that gold really correlates best with is global liquidity. Global liquidity, because gold, of course, is a global currency. So when you have when you have an increase in global liquidity, the price of gold goes up. And you know, it's been it's been extremely clear for many, many, many decades that that is what it the closest uh, parallel. And you know, when the Fed did start to sort of ease or pull back on that balance sheet. Uh, by not rolling over bonds that had um, matured. And so you had a slight, a slight uh, decline in the balance sheet. Gold, that was in 2000, um, uh, what was that, 2017, gold started to come back a little bit. So global liquidity is, is number one, without a shadow of doubt. And, and that, of course, leads to things like uh, a negative, you know, a, a, a negative real rate of interest and um, decline in the dollar and so on. But those are not the main drivers of gold. Those are consequences of global liquidity. I think what you, and you raise the point about March. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you have a, anytime you have a sudden liquidity event, we saw it in, um, August, September of, of 2008. We saw it in 1987 with the market crash. We saw it in March this year. Anytime you have a short, sharp break in assets based on, a liqu on liquidity, gold sells off. And that's, as you said, that's natural. People get margin calls. They look for something to sell and gold always has a bid. 
you know, if the price of gold is, uh, you know, 1905 spot four five, and I asked to sell my gold, I'll get 1907.45 less whatever commission it is. It's not like, you know, in a, in a, in a panic liquidation where some stocks go no bid, or, you know, there's that old saying, I want to sell a million shares of IBM. Okay, we'll give you, you know, $58. But my computer says $67. Okay, sell it to your computer. Um, so you, you sell what you can sell, right? So I, I, I think it sounds, it sounds a bit odd to say it, but I think gold performed this function very well as a source of liquidity when people actually sold yeah. it in a panic. We've seen a pullback now, and I think a lot of that, frankly, I mean, is, is uh, people going to cash ahead of the election. People are, people are nervous. They don't know which way things are going. And, you know, there's definitely been a bit of a, a, a drive to just go to cash uh, in the last few months. I think also gold ran up so much from March to the end of July, um, much yeah. further than it probably quote should have um which is not a word i like to use with regard to markets because markets shouldn't do anything but um you know it it, it ran up uh, the gold gold ran up you know over 30 percent uh from march to the end of july uh didn't have any kind of pullback at all in that period so i think it was well overdue for a pullback and when markets typically, when markets go longer than they quote should without a correction or a pullback, the eventual pullback tends to last a little bit longer than it otherwise would. And so gold has been in a kind of sideways action uh, since August, really. I think after the election, things will change. Yeah, I don't know how, I, I, is your investor base retail, institutional, some combination of the two? I mean, ours is almost exclusively retail people. and. I can tell you that everybody, as it relates to the election, is just concerned about like one thing, which is like, what if my team loses? And that's it. Like, it's mostly retail, and you know, it's a mix. Um, a lot of small businesses and things like that, but mostly, mostly retail. It's not super high net worth or anything. Um, right. Yeah, and I think there's a growing consensus. This is a new to us today, but there's a growing consensus that. Uh, a sweep, whether it's a Democratic sweep or whether Trump is re-elected and the Republicans retain the Senate, uh, that will sort of continue what we're doing. Um, it might shift the priority, not it might, it will shift the priorities of spending, but the worst outcome people are looking at would be um, a deadlock, and, and the most likely deadlock would be the Republicans retain the Senate and, and Biden becomes president, because then the Republicans will suddenly rediscover fiscal rectitude and will not go along with all of the, the you know, spending plans. So that will be the- that It's be happening the, now. I mean, watch how fast Mitch McConnell becomes a deficit hawk. It's beginning to happen now. It's beginning to happen now. But I think it is, yeah. But I think part of that, frankly, is because these talks about the third stimulus, you know, when it was a trillion, okay, we'll go along with that. Okay, let's do it. No, 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 that's not good enough. We want, you know, two trillion. 
And then this battle has gone on for so long, uh, but I think a, a lot of the hawks, if you want, have decided to put their feet down and say, no, 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 enough's enough. I think they could have got a trillion through quite easily, frankly, if they'd have done it. Well, the bid ask spread was one eight by two two, and I think the quibbling was over whether whether and how much money went to the states because they don't want to recapitalize these pension obligations and all this other stuff. But like, if they recapitalize the states, that would be one of the most bullish things. I think like I would be extremely constructive on all kinds of things if the states got recapitalized because the states spend money it's high it's high powered it's localized economies they're big employers it's like that money's gonna move baby yeah yeah i mean the problem the problem is in the big picture the problem is if you essentially bail out the states but had no budget controls of any type and caused their own problems to a large degree, then are you just, is it just a moral hazard? Are, are you just encouraging them to do it again, you know, in five years or 10 years? Well, the, the biggest problem for the states is the, is the OPEB, which is the, uh, the other post-employment uh, uh, obligations, benefit obligations. And a lot of them have made moves to really curtail that on a go forward basis, but it's the stuff that they've promised in the past that's incredibly problematic. And so, sure, sure. You, know, you know, I read it. And so like this is going to that's going to get settled out somehow. And it, it, whether it's in a bankruptcy court or not a bankruptcy court because the states aren't allowed to file bankruptcy, it's going to get sorted out one way or another. And the question is, you know, do you want to really make the economy move or not move? And if there's a there's a blue sweep and they recap the states like. I think that I think that'll make the economy cook pretty. It'll run pretty hot for a couple of years, would be my guess. Well, I think I think that's probably true. Yeah, that's probably true. But at the cost yeah. of of hurting, you know, further destroying your currency, further destroying. Oh state, yeah, yeah. Further monopoly money savers. Sorry. It'll be monopoly money at some point. Yeah. 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 And I hate to call it money, actually. I prefer to call it currency. But that's a different, yeah. that's a different topic. <laughs> I've, I've definitely come around on, I, you know, I used to be a, a, you know, gold is just a shiny yellow rock kind of guy. And uh, even with like Bitcoin, Bitcoin is like, you know, it's just what criminals transact in. And sort of I've come around to the idea of the idea of non-government money, whatever form that might take. Um, as being something that might be emerging as an even more and more important thing. I agree with, I know I agree with that completely, but the big difficulty with that is what, what control or potential control does the government have over any form of uh, alternative currency? Because, you know, an, an alternative, a non-government currency isn't much good. The government can shut it down whenever they want to. Right. Or, or hurt people when, whenever they want to. You know, I mean, all, all well, I think IRS. Sorry? I said, I think the most likely form of action if they were going to do that was, would be to go after the various choke points in the system for, you know, because money has to enter or leave a digital environment somehow, right? Like in order to actually do sure. that. No, absolutely. And, and they could do that quite easily if they wanted to. Gold is a little bit more difficult because gold is more 
you know, in the 1930s, it was relatively easy for the US government to confiscate gold because most gold was held domestically and most gold was held in safety deposit boxes at banks. So it was relatively easy to enforce those rules. I think it would be a lot more difficult to enforce today um, a confiscation of gold. It's certainly not on the horizon because you know the, the Fed and other authorities don't really regard gold as money. So there's no particular incentive for them to be concerned about what's happening to gold. But you know, at some point, a uh, dollar goes down and gold continues to go up. I think I think they'll begin to, you know, focus on it a little bit more. But I, I don't see a confiscation at this point, frankly. So I'm not concerned about that. All right, guys. No, I mean, yeah. I think I think we're there. I think we covered a lot today, and uh, you know, it was this was a roundtable. I was very happy to not have to speak too much because, quite frankly, I don't know nearly as much as you two do on this topic, and that's why I wanted to do it so I could just sit here and listen. Um, and, uh, and and quite frankly, you answered most of my questions that I would have had just in in both your answers. Actually, Gary and Adrian you both asked great questions that I was very curious to know more about. So we're there. Let's get some final thoughts and where our audience can go and find more information about both of you. So uh, Adrian, uh, since, uh, since Gary went first at the outset, I'll let you uh, go first here to uh, close this out. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't help getting away from the moral dimension here. You just can't help it. But I think we're on a very, very dangerous course where savers are punished by policy. Policy is punishing savers. Policy is, is, is punishing um, uh, uh, lenders. And policy is widening the wealth gap. That is the most, the last of that is the most damaging of all. Um, and it leads to divisions, it leads to violence. And, and if it's unchecked, it could lead to you know, extremely serious uh, 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 violence of some sort, as it has in, in other countries throughout history. And where and where can our and where can our audience go find more information about you and Adrian Day Asset Management? Oh, um, the email, the um, website is uh, adriandayassetmanagement.com. Very good. And Gary? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I have any including thoughts, you can get your tinfoil hats at my Shopify store, Gary's tinfoil hats. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, this is one I, I spent some time just chewing on and trying to figure out and just trying to figure out what to do. So we spent a lot of time talking about those things. And if anyone has any thoughts on what to do about them, like I, I'd love to hear those. So uh, uh, you can find me. We, I'm, my, my RA is accretivewealthpartners.com. So we are our creative wealth partners. We have a website at creativewealthpartners.com, and uh, we also have a podcast that Bobby helps us produce. Uh, and uh, producer, but he's producer Bobby on that show. Today he's host Bobby. And uh, yeah, so have yeah, fun. Very good. And uh, that the website to listen to uh, Gary and Eric's podcast is in the market trenches.podbean.com. And you can listen to that wherever you get your podcast, including on our YouTube channel at SNN, uh, our SNN network YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash SNNWire, which is where you can also watch 
this, the Investors Roundtable. Again, I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And gentlemen, this was great. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I look forward to our next one. Thank you. Good meeting you, Gary. Nice to meet you, Adrian.